الله أكبر الله أكبر Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Islamic Center at New York University podcast coming to you straight from the heart of New York City. We're building an amazing Muslim community here at ICNYU where everyone is welcomed and respected no matter where you're from or where you're at. This is the place to be. So open your ears and your heart and come along with us on another life-changing journey. Bismillah. 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 Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalam ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Assalamu alaikum rahmatullah. Um, so we're going to get into the next chunk of the hadith uh, after the angel has now sat down, the angel Gabriel, um, and has begun interacting with the Prophet salam. Uh, last week we were talking a lot about what those initial interactions were teaching us around just the etiquette of being a student and why it was important for us to understand some of the specifics of this description, that he's wearing this very white clothing, and what does that mean in terms of how we should be dressing when we are standing in front of Allah in our prayers, when we're going to Jummah, you're coming to the halakha, to the class, that he's standing as close to the Prophet, seated knee to knee with him, you know, his hands on his knees, that you want to not be at a distance from the teacher, but you want to be in a place where you're kind of there with a desire to learn. His hair is very dark, black, the hadith says, so indicating that the form the angel takes of a young person, not an elderly person. So part of the etiquette of learning is that when you're young, you're making time for the acquisition of knowledge um, and other things that we're getting into. So if somebody wants to just read the hadith in its entirety, um, and then we'll pick up from the parts that we had left off from. Uh, it's the second hadith in the collection of Imam Nawi's hadith, 40 hadith collection. This is called the Hadith Jibrail, the Hadith of Gabriel. So you can also look it up that way too. Um, does anybody have it? If you can't read the Arabic, you can just read the English also, especially in the interest of time. We're going to try to bang through a bunch of things before Maghrib starts. Yeah, go ahead. Also on the authority of Omar, who said, one day while we were sitting with the messenger of Allah, a man came over to us with clothes whose clothes were exceedingly white and whose hair was exceedingly black. No signs of travel were seen on him, but none of us knew, but none of us knew him. He came and sat down opposite the Prophet and rested his knees against his, placing the palms of his hands on his thighs. He said, O Muhammad, inform me about Islam. The Messenger of Allah said, Islam is to testify that there is no God, no God but Allah, and that Muhammad is the Messenger of Allah. To establish prayer, to give zakah, to fast Ramadan, and to make the pilgrimage to the house, if you are able to do so. He said, you have spoken the truth. And we wondered at his asking him and confirming it. He said, then inform me about Iman. He said, it is to believe in Allah, his angels, his books, his messengers, in the last day, and to believe in predestination, both the good and the evil thereof. He said, you have spoken truth. He said, then inform me about Isan. He said, it is to worship Allah as though you see him. If you do not see him, indeed he sees you. He said, then inform me about the hour. He said, 
the one question about it knows no more than the questioner. He said, then inform me of its signs. He said, that the slave woman will give birth to her mistress and that you will see barefooted, naked, destitute shepherds competing in the loftiness of constructions. Then he departed and I stayed for a time. Then he said, oh, Omer, you know who the questioner was? I said, Allah and his messenger are more knowing. He said, it was Gabriel. He came to you to teach you your religion. So the entire context of the hadith summated in this last section that the angel Gabriel is coming to teach this religion to the people. So every element of the hadith has some capacity of learning to it. So we're in this second section now where the conversation starts, Akhbirni an al-Islam, that give me the khabar, teach me, inform me about what Islam is. And it presents to us now an important facet in other variations of this hadith, we have what is iman that comes first, right? In the formula of it, iman becomes a necessary prerequisite in order for the Islam as an element to be something that's a key variable to this. And I want to give you a definition of what iman is and a definition of what Islam is beyond just some of the things that we kind of understand it to be in terms of what the actual responses are that the angel Jibra'il is met with from the Prophet right? That these five pillars, for example, are things that the Prophet says that this is what Islam is. But that first one that he mentions of the Shahada gives us embedded within it both a definition or an opportunity for a definition of what Islam is and what Iman is. But we want to kind of think about this for ourselves a little bit deeply. Iman, if we were to give it a definition, it has three parts to it. They say, first element of Iman, what is faith, is tasdiq bil qalb, that you have an affirmation with the heart. The second element to Iman is Iqrar bil lisan, that you have now a element of kind of affirming this from the tongue. You're speaking it, and then the third element of iman is amal bil jawahir, that there's actions from the limbs, and so you want to see this as a synergetic relationship between Islam and iman. This definition of what faith is, an affirmation of it, this shahada, for example that exists within the heart, right? Because in that first layer, there is a acknowledgement and a recognition of a relationship between one and one's creator. That's where the affirmation of the heart comes in. Tasdiq bil qalb. You then have this second element that comes up, the iqrar bil lisan, so that there's an element of recognition of where and how we relate on a communal level. Right? How would one know that you're Muslim if you are not speaking that element of Iman in a actualized manifest capacity? Doesn't mean that you have to do it. No, not necessarily, but there's an intrinsic link here that we'll talk about. Because there were people who did the Iqrar bil lisan, but they didn't have tasdiq bil qalb. These were the munafiqeen, may Allah protect us from them, the hypocrites. They outwardly expressed Islam, but didn't have the inward element of faith. Does this make sense? And I want you to think about this definition and how it attaches 
to the a'mal bil jawahir, the actions of the limbs, in relation to what we know as we talk about this first part of the hadith Jibrail in the instructional format where he asks, Akhbirni anil Islam, give me the khabar of Islam, because most of us would respond knowing what the five pillars of Islam are, but what is the actual definition of this word, right? Grammatically, it's a gerund. It's a verbal noun. So it's denoting that you're doing Islam, right? There's this element there of an active engagement of it. And we quite often understand it in the prism of this definition of Iman to inform submission to something. What are you submitting to? Because these things that the angel is being met with in response are the vehicles of submission. But if somebody was to say to you, what is the submission in its totality about when you're talking about Islam? To have a definition that you're working off of so you don't see your Islam and being Muslim as a sociological identity variable. I was born into the religion. But if somebody says, what am I definitively submitting to? And thinking about it more broadly, you cannot have a definition that says I'm just submitting to Allah if you've never thought about who Allah is to you to begin with. And understanding the different pieces of all of this all together, what is it giving to us in the broader sense for me as a Muslim practicing this religion, my submission is to what? What I'd like you to do is turn to the persons next to you, share names, a few more people have trickled in. What is it that this definition is? Somebody was to say Islam is about subservience, submission to something, what are you submitting to? And not a platitude, not a slogan. Don't say that I'm just submitting to the will of God if that doesn't mean something to you. Distill it to a place that is concrete, that gives you a set of metrics to assess where that actual submission is and what is it that is a totality, a holistic submission. Doesn't mean you can't struggle with things, right? That's not what we're saying. It doesn't mean that you suddenly become a super Muslim overnight. We're not saying that either. But we have to have a baseline definition of what it is that we're working towards and what is the application of this word actually in reference to when we're talking about submission as a key part to this first dimension of Islam which is attached to these rituals and practices. Does the question make sense? So if you turn the person next to you, what is it that we are defining this to be, right? I am a Muslim. What am I actually submitting to through the practice of my Islam? If you can turn to the person next to you, talk it out for two minutes, and then we'll come back and discuss. Go ahead. Okay, so what are some of the things that we're discussing? How do we understand this concept of submission? What quite often gets the translation of Islam like if we were to kind of distill it a little bit more, what what is it that we're talking about? Who wants to start? Yeah. We said that it's mission to, of course, like a lot, but through the Quran and the Sunnah. And so, on. So, so what does that mean?
submit. Yeah. We discussed like doing what we're commanded to do and also not doing what we're commanded not to do. Okay. Other thoughts? It's not like a right or wrong as such, unless you're like crazy wrong and something you say. But what are you discussing? So you start to build kind of a tangible relationship with it. Yeah. And so it's not like a pick-and-choose mentality that here's what I'm going to do and here's the stuff I'm going to leave behind. There's a difference between struggle versus being selective by virtue of what exactly. So if you were to give a definition to this, what is Islam? It's essentially a submission to everything that was brought by the Prophet Muhammad, peace be and blessings be upon him, all of it. You have these mechanisms that are there that manifest themselves in terms of ritual and practice, but embedded within those are also deeper understandings and implications that say there's a lot that goes into this that is much more than these five things. What most of us get is just this one pillar of, or one dimension of religion. And you want to really think about it in terms of a learning mechanism and process, how it is that one can qualify themselves to be Muslim is at a baseline, you got to at least do these things. We're going to talk about them in a little bit more detail in an upcoming hadith that says, Islam ala khams, that Islam is built upon five things. So what all of these things are in more detail, we can kind of extrapolate more meaning when we get to that hadith. But understanding, at a minimum, these are things you got to do if you want to have the label of Muslim. And they're an outward understanding of the faith in and of itself. They have a relationship to the next tier, which is Iman, because the ritual is not meant to be something that is an ends, but a means to something. But you'd have to wrestle inwardly with yourself that says, I am Muslim, but I'm not doing even these things. Am I doing the prayers? Am I fasting the fast? Am I giving the zakat? Did I get the hajj done as soon as I had the means to do so? The central point for all of it is this first part, which is shahada, that bears an outward expression, right? If you convert to this religion, you've seen people convert to this religion, they are verbalizing the testimony of faith. They're putting it out there. Even if they're just saying it to themselves, sitting in their house, it is considered valid. But you've seen people come at Juma. You've seen people come here. Last week, three people walked into this space and took their shahada, mashallah. They're doing that second part of the definition of iman. Iqrar bil-lisan, it is spoken, it is being manifest from the tongue. In and of itself, though, it segues back to that first element, that is tasdik bil-qalb, to have affirmation in the heart. And so these practices are meant to bring you from the outward in to that state of a wakeful heart. 
You get what I mean? It doesn't do that if there's not a recognition of what it is as an entirety of a system. If you live your life in such a way where there's not struggle with religion, sometimes, sometimes you get to a place that says this is tough or this is difficult, and somehow everything just falls in accord with the way that you do things is always like the right way to do it, then you're probably not living a life that's subservient to God, but you've made God subservient to you in some capacity. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean perfection is what the pursuit is, because that's a futile pursuit. There's going to be mistakes. There's going to be struggles. But this idea of submitting to it has to not be understood in a vacuum. It has to be understood in a place, well, what are these things giving to me as a means? And it's coming back to the idea that that outward is meant to deepen in a state of inward transformation. And that second tier of what is iman is meant to be the inward now starts to bear manifestation of what is the outward. Why this hadith is called Umm Sunnah, it is the mother of the Sunnah, is because within it is every part of religion. And this is a foundational entry point. Iman and Islam, the two things go hand in hand. You have a concept in Sharia that looks at do these words have interchangeable meanings or not? Can somebody say Muslim and Mu'min, a person of Islam and a person of Iman, are the same exact word? It would depend contextually. If you're in a place where the words are used separately, in no relation to one another in the sense that someone says, I'm a Muslim, someone says, I'm a Mu'min, then in those verses in Hadith, they tend to have a similar meaning. But when they're mentioned simultaneously in a certain tradition, verse, then there's a categorical distinction that's being made, and qualitatively the distinction is rooted in these. Elements of what is inward, faith, and elements of what is outward, practice. So that first part of what is Islam, we'll get into more detail as we get to another hadith, but you have to see how it links to faith. And that inward introspective recognition, can I say I'm a person of faith if I am not doing the minimums, or can I get to a place where I understand that the minimums become a key foundation for me to deepen in that affirmation of inward states of my heart. Do you get what I mean? And you want to shift the paradigm because the notion isn't to weaponize it and to start breaking people down because how are you going to know what's going on inside of somebody to begin with? There's a companion of the Prophet by the name of Osama bin Zayd radiallahu anhuma, who he is the son of a man by the name of Zayd ibn Haritha. Zayd ibn Haritha is so close to the Prophet ﷺ that on one occasion he's actually known as Zayd ibn Muhammad, Zayd the son of Muhammad. And when the Qur'an reveals verses that say you can't assume the natal identity of another child, a person's child, right? Like some of you know, my wife and I, we have 
become registered to officially be foster parents of children who are in the foster care system. I can't say that that kid is now my actual child, but it doesn't mean that I can't help provide care to that child, right? There's a lot of mention in the Quran about taking care of orphans and children in need and all of these kinds of things. But I can't say you are now the son of Khalid Latif. It doesn't work that way. There's wisdoms to this. You can't, for example, usurp people's wealth and their inheritance, right? Because it's crazy. You walk into a foster care home, you kind of see just the devastation that these little babies are going through. But then you also understand the corruption that exists on other ends. People take children in and stories that we see, plot lines in movies are actually very real. They're collecting government subsidies to be able to line their pockets as they abuse these children. May Allah make things easy for all of them. Osama ibn Zayd is the son of this man, though, who was so close to the Prophet that before those verses were revealed, he was known as Zayd ibn Muhammad. And when the verses are revealed of you can't assume the natal identity of any individual, Zayd ibn Muhammad goes back to being Zayd ibn Haritha. Osama ibn Zayd is also the son of a woman by the name of Um Ayman Barakah. If you come to the Wednesday Sira class, we're going to talk about a little bit more this Wednesday. She's arguably the only companion of the Prophet who's with him from the time he's born until the time he dies. She is an Abyssinian woman who at 16 years of age is taken in as servant in the household of Abdullah, the Prophet's father. When Abu Bakr and Umar miss the Prophet after he passes, they would go sit with this woman, Um Ayman Barakah. She's a black woman living in the house of the Prophet, one of the women who nurses him, very close to him. Osama is the child of these two beloved people. When the Prophet would take his own grandson and put him on one of his knees and put Osama bin Zayd on his other knee, he would make dua saying that, Ya Allah, love them as I love them. There's no doubt that he loves Osama bin Zayd. When Osama bin Zayd is older, and he's not like 50 years older, as a late teen, he's appointed in high ranks within the Muslim army because patterns of maturation and emerging adulthood were very different. And it's not that it doesn't exist today, right? But just again to understand the context of what we're talking about here. You go to some parts of the world right now and walk into marketplaces and there's seven-year-olds sitting behind stalls dealing and negotiating with people. But a product of society where we are that doesn't allow for accountability, which is intrinsically linked to this idea of submission from the standpoint of our religion, that you have choice, but you don't sometimes choose when the full picture is not presented in ways that it should be. And dunya then becomes what you're actually in submission to, or your own ego do you see the one who takes their desire as being their Lord? Osama ibn Zayd is a mature young man. And he's in the battlefield. They're with a Medanese person, someone from the Ansar, a man from Medina. And there's somebody who is going back and forth with them, causing a lot of detriment. And before Osama is about to strike a fatal blow, this man says, La ilaha illallah. Osama ibn Zayd has seconds to decide what he's going to do. So he decides to take this man's life. 
The Medanese man goes back to the Prophet and says, this is what transpired. The man said his shahada. Usama took his life. Is this what we're supposed to do? He's draining a direct fatwa from the Prophet of God. He's not telling on somebody. He's just trying to understand religiously what do we do in this situation. The Prophet says to him, did you kill him after he said, La ilaha illallah? And Usama bin Zayd says, Ya Rasulullah, inna makana muta'awidha, that he was just seeking protection, right? How we say, A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytanir rajeem. He's saying he's seeking protection in this way. He said, did you kill him after he said, La ilaha illallah? He was just scared to die, O Messenger of God. And he says, Ya Usama, did you open up his chest and look into his heart to see that this was the reason that he did what he did? And then he continues to ask him, did you kill him after he said, la ilaha illallah? Did you kill him after he said, la ilaha illallah? Aqataltuhu ba'da maqala la ilaha illallah. To the extent that Osama bin Zayd says, I wish I became Muslim after this day, so that the Prophet wouldn't be so disappointed in me. There's other narrations that give us different insight on similar incidents, same incidents, but the Prophet has a similar interaction with Osama bin Zayd. He is in the battle, somebody is causing problems, takes his life after he says, La ilaha illallah. The people say, Oh, Messenger of God, rejoice. Osama took care of this person who did this. The Prophet says, Tell me how it happened. And he gives each detail, including that the man says, La ilaha illallah, before he takes his life. And the Prophet says immediately, Lima qataltahu, then why did you kill him? And he says, Astaghfirli ya Rasulullah, seek forgiveness on my behalf, O Messenger of God. He says, Ya Osama, kaifa tasma'una bil la ilaha illallah fa'idha jad bil yawm al-qiyamah. Then, oh Osama, what are you going to do when he comes carrying this la ilaha illallah against you on the day of judgment? He says, astaghfirli ya Rasulullah, seek forgiveness on my behalf, O Messenger of God. He says, Ya Osama, what are you going to do when he comes carrying this la ilaha illallah against you on the day of judgment? Another principle to this is when he is saying, akhbirni an al-islam, and the Prophet is saying, this is what is Islam, this is what is Iman, you are not the adjudicator of somebody's Islam. The notion is not to utilize for yourself limited knowledge that then elevates you by denigrating somebody else. Within the prism of what is Islam and what the Prophet has brought, there are diverse opinions pretty much on most everything. And it becomes a sign of spiritual immaturity to believe, I know the reason that everything happened and every opinion on whatever it is. And we don't want to be in this place, Jazakallah Khair, where we think about things in these ways. I used to be a TA when I was an undergrad at the New York City Technical College across the street from Tandon, which was then called Polytechnic, our engineering school in Brooklyn. And it was the winter time, and I went to pray in the New York City Technical College prayer room that they had for Muslim students. I made wudu in the bathroom. I took off my socks because that's the opinion I follow, that you can't wipe over socks. There's other people who have different opinions. And then I put my socks back on because it was the winter and it was snowing and it was cold. And I went into the prayer room and there's a guy leaning against the wall. I'm not stereotyping him, but he looks like somebody that would hang out in an MSA prayer room all day. And a guy came to pray next to me, and we prayed together, and then the person who was sitting in the prayer room pretty much all day said to him in Urdu 
that he's wearing his socks and wiped over his socks when he made wudu, so his prayer doesn't count, which means your prayer doesn't count, and you should repeat your prayer. And I turned around and started talking to him back in Urdu and said, I actually took off my socks, but even if I didn't take off my socks, who are you to tell me my prayer doesn't count? And he said, I didn't know you spoke Urdu. And I said, that makes it twice as worse that you're gossiping about me in front of me and you were wrong on numerous occasions. And this poor guy is just trying to worship his God and he sees you as the don of the MSA because you look Muslim by the length of your beard. You have more responsibility than to just play games with this beautiful religion and tweaking your ego. And he said, sorry brother, I won't do it again. And I said, you shouldn't have done it in the first place. Akhbirni on al-Islam says that we as Muslims connect by virtue not of shared externals, shared race, shared culture, shared class. But you are people who will pray salah together, you should be able to eat together. You are people who share a common shahada, that should be enough for you to uphold a certain sense of dignity towards one another. The Quranic narrative already says, وَلَكَدْ كَرَمْنَا بَنِي Adam That all of the children of Adam are dignified, regardless of their faith. Everyone you share humanity with. But now you nuance it with a shared relationship in faith, rooted in this. This is a key variable. I'm not connected to you just because you and I speak the same language. I'm not going to look for a way to weaponize this beautiful deen and take things into a place where I suddenly now comment on everybody's practice. The Prophet is telling his close companion that he loves, did you look into someone's chest, opening it up and looking into their heart to see why they do what they do? So it's not meant to be in this place of let me use it to suddenly break down people around me. What is Islam? This is Islam. Just these five things. And the angel says, Sadaqt, that he has spoken the truth. Sadaqta, that you are truthful. He, you are correct. There's a point here on adab also that stems from the first part that is important to understand. That you wouldn't be in a place where when you're speaking to somebody out of deference, an elder, a professor, a teacher, a sheikh, whether you agree with them or not, that you sit down and you ask them a question. Hey, do we pray five times a day? And the person says, yes, we pray five times a day. And then you say to them, yeah, you're right. It comes across as disrespectful. There's an absence of adab that is there. You understand ethics in Islam to be situational, not things that are just absolute. I don't talk to my eight-year-old the way that I talk to his almost 80-year-old grandfather. They are in different frames of existence. The angel Jibrail is given a different insight here based off of what we were talking about before. Why is he able to say to the prophet something that a student should not say to a teacher, a young person should not speak to an elder in that way because he's the prophet's teacher. So he's able to engage him in a different capacity. We're going to go through each of those points in detail. And we want to understand them from the standpoint of they lay the foundation 
dimensionally, you have to practice this religion. If somebody says, what's the point of the practice? Well, these are the things you got to do. That second frame, akhbirni an al-iman, give me news, what is this thing of iman, is something that has to happen simultaneously that most of us don't get. If you want to have a starting point, because he now gives these six articles of faith, which again, if there's a commonality across the board of what is foundational principles of Iman, then you don't want to get into the habit of saying that somebody is not right in their being Muslim if they are sharing these things in common with you. We're going to look in the coming weeks at this part of the Hadith in a lot more detail. But to start off with, some of the things that you want to do is look at Surah Al-Ikhlas, the short chapter that many of us know that speak to us fundamentally about what is the theology of God in our religion. It's a very negative knowledge, not pessimistic, but we know who Allah is by knowing who Allah is not. If I asked each one of you to write down on a piece of paper and hand to me, who is God to you, what would you write on it? And to understand that in this prism of Iman Billah, having faith in God, you can believe that Allah created you. It doesn't mean that you believe Allah is your provider. You can believe that Allah is Al-Khaliq. It doesn't mean that you believe that He is Ar-Rahman, the most merciful. You can believe that Allah made you and created you and put you in this world and even believe that He will take you out. It doesn't mean you believe that you have some type of accountability towards Him or that you're going to stand in front of Him. Do you believe in His eternal beginninglessness? Do you understand that even after there is nothing, there will still be Him? Do you recognize who Allah Zawjal is as an entity in our relationship to our Islam? We'll go through all of these things in terms of angels and books and messengers and the last day and predestination, Qadr, the good and bad of it, and then talk about Ihsan, how do these three things look at each other from a dimensional standpoint, and then how the Prophet encapsulates all of this in the variable of time, right? When he's asking about, tell me about the hour. But what I'd like you to do between this week and next week is think about these things. Not just as practice that somebody gave to you. You converted to Islam and they said, here's a list of do's and don'ts and rules. Or you were born into it and you were taught how to recite the Arabic of the Quran and the mechanics of the prayer. But nobody said, this is who you're praying to. Think about it as systems that exist within a broader umbrella, overlapping as dimensions that are necessary for the enhancement of one's own relationship to themselves, to the others around them, to God in very definitive ways and where you stand in relation to all of them. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you're inspired by the work that we're doing at the IC and want to help keep it going, subscribe to our podcasts, follow us on social media, donate to help support us at icnyu.org, and most importantly, keep us in your continued du'as. Until next time, inshallah. Assalamu